What's up, Flatirons? How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, uh, I want to give you some updates on a couple things real quick. Last week was an exciting weekend across all three of our campuses, baptism weekend. We had just shy of 600 people get baptized last weekend, which was awesome. Really great week. This is, uh, this is a big week for us as we, we lead into to Easter, and we're going to be doing some things differently this year. And one of the things that's going to be different in our Easter services, we're, we're not going to be taking communion together corporately in our service on Easter weekend. It's one of our attempts to make sure we can be out of here in about 55 minutes so we can empty parking lots and all that kind of thing. So we thought it'd be cool if we could open up across all of our campuses a 24-hour time between noon on Thursday and noon on Friday where you could come in, you could take communion, you could spend a few minutes or a few hours, whatever you want, for 24 hours hours here at this campus it'll be at the the west end you can go down there and about every 30 minutes uh, there will be a, a video loop with instructions that will restart so if you show up on that half hour increment you could get there on the on the beginning of that and you can follow those instructions and you can show up whenever you want you can stay as long as you want that kind of thing and we'll also have the opportunity uh, to pray over those names that we wrote down of people that we're going to be inviting to attend on Easter weekend so take part in that across any of our campuses I think it'll be a really really cool experience for for a lot of us all right the other thing is this we've had this Easter central thing on our website and um, a lot of you have done a great job about RSVPing for Easter and things like that and that really informed some of our decisions we added some services at our Denver campus because of that and so if you haven't done that yet you can go online and what you're going to want to avoid is um, the service times that have the little church on fire don't go don't go to those, okay, because the fire marshal will be there, you'll get arrested, and we'll all go to jail, it'll be bad. Um, go for the ones that look like they have lovely green grass in front of them, okay, those service times. This service time at this campus is going to be just in- incredibly busy and incredibly crazy. We're expecting a whole lot of people at this one. So if, if you can avoid this service and go to another one, please do. If this is the only one you can do, then just come join the fire fun, okay? Um, but uh, it's going to be a great, great Easter weekend. We're really looking forward to it. Everybody's gearing up for it. So let's pray, and then we're going to wrap up this war effort series that we've been in, all right? So let's pray. Father, we come before you and when we, when we talk about things and we, we applaud for things like 600 people who were baptized last weekend, it's not lost on a lot of us that that is, that is an unbelievable thing that you're doing in, in the life of our church and that you would, you would be drawing lost and broken people to you so constantly and so consistently in this place so that we could witness um, just what you're doing and how amazing you are in each other's lives is really incredible and we're grateful for that and we're thankful for that. Thank you for who you are and how you've really just taken care of us as a church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So two weeks ago, my family and I, we go on this epic Great American Griswold-style road trip across America for spring break, and we drive uh, back to my homeland of Kentucky, and we went to see uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and new babies that were born in some people I'm pretty sure who I'm not related to that just showed up for a meal. But, you know, the, all the, we, we kind of went all over the state of Kentucky and then we landed in my hometown of, of Lexington, Kentucky for a couple, a couple days. And it's really surreal when you're in your hometown and you haven't been back in a long time. There's certain familiarity to it, but then there's also things that seem different and things that have changed. And so that was, that was really interesting for me. And, and so my, my daughter, who is uh, really, really into horses, she's 13 years old. Um, she rides horses. She trains horses. She's like a horse whisperer. There's a the, there's a, a farm in our neighborhood that boards horses and she has a horse up there that she rides and takes care of and things like that she'll actually ride it down into our like driveway and come say hi to us and all the neighbors like look at her as she's sitting on this giant horse in our driveway like then there's the people from Kentucky you know and she uh, she's really into horses and so if you didn't know Lexington Kentucky is the horse capital of the world and so there were some experiences that we felt like we should give her while we were there and again when you grow up in an area you don't do a lot of the touristy things unless you have to go for like a a field trip like when people come to visit here and they're like let's go to Casa Bonita you're like I don't want food poisoning this week you know <laughs> so 
So, but in Lexington, there's, there's a few places that are kind of touristy. One, one place in particular, uh, the Kentucky Horse Park is there. And it is, it's beautiful. I mean, look, look at this. I mean, it, it looks a lot like Ireland. And I've been to Ireland. It's pretty much the same thing. I mean, it, it's awesome. Hundreds and hundreds of acres of just rolling green fields with, with these beautiful horses. And, and so we took Landry uh, to the Kentucky Horse Park, a place I had only been like once when I was a kid. And she was in heaven. It was, it was amazing for her. We got to see all these famous retired racehorses and all these different rare breeds and things like that that and, and that was actually the coolest part for me we did this thing called the parade of breeds where we sat down on these bleachers outside this corral and they picked like four or five like really really unique breeds of horses and they rode them out into this corral and they told you all these cool facts about these horses as you as you looked at these horses and we saw things like Arabian horses and Tennessee walking horses and things like that but the this one horse they brought this one horse out and I was just like mesmerized with this horse I got like obsessed with this horse and this lady rode out on this horse called a person I want you to see this thing. This thing is, is in the family of draft horses, like the Budweiser Clydesdale horses, you know what I'm talking about? That thing is 2,000 pounds of sheer muscle, stands about seven and a half feet tall, and I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, that is a bad horse. That is an awesome, that's the kind of horse, if I was going to ride into like a battle, or if I was like a king, that's the horse I would ride right there. Like that is the most awesome horse in the world. I was like, I want one. I wonder, I wonder if the HOA would be okay with me, with me putting one of those in the backyard. Probably not. I mean, but it, I would never have to mow my grass again. That would be cool. And I, so I just got obsessed with these horses. So I, I started doing all this research on, on, I nerded out. I totally geeked out on Percherons. And so turns out they are war horses. That's what they were bred for. They were specifically bred to go into battle. Medieval knights used to ride on these things. They were used in battle all the way up through World War I. We actually shipped Percherons over to Europe to be used in World War I. These are war horses through and through. Like they love to run into the fight. Like that's an awesome horse. That's, that's a great, like I'm still kind of geeking out about him, you know. And so we're in, we're in this series, right, called, called The War Effort. And we've been looking at, we've been looking at these marching orders that our, our commander, Jesus, has given us. And we've been looking at these, th- this statement every week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, Jesus gave us those marching orders after his death, burial, and resurrection before he ascended to heaven, all right? What I want to do is I want to press rewind a little bit and locate us exactly where we are today, Palm Sunday, one week out from Easter Sunday. That's where I want to pick up in Jesus' life. And and here's what's, what's happening. In Jerusalem, there's this famous feast called Passover going on. Thousands and thousands of Jewish people would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate this very famous feast. And Jesus is among them. So Jesus actually has the opportunity to make like this grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem during the Passover feast. And I want you to see how he rides into town. Check this out. Matthew 21 verse 1. Now... When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, here's the picture, all right? He's coming into town via the Mount of Olives, which is about 2,000 feet above 
Jerusalem. And so that means he's going to be coming into town in full view of thousands of people who have already entered the city. And he's going to be on this main thoroughfare of other people entering the city. So there's going to be a lot of people witnessing the way that he enters the city. And Jesus chooses a donkey to ride on, not just a donkey, but a baby donkey, all right, which is the size of like a big dog, to ride into town on in front of everybody. Now, I don't have to tell you this, but donkeys are very uninspiring creatures, all right? They're not inspiring <laughs> at all. They are stubborn, they are mean, they are unruly, and they are not inspiring. Like, there were no donkeys at the Kentucky Horse Park, none. I didn't see any. If they would have had one there, I would have asked for all my money back because there's nothing interesting or inspiring about a donkey. This is not the way like a king would ride into town. Like why in the world would Jesus choose to ride into town on a donkey? Now, now here's the thing, all right? Jesus doesn't do things by accident. So if he's gonna ride into town with his feet dragging the ground on an unruly baby donkey, there's a, there's a reason that he's doing that, all right? So keep reading. Look at this, Matthew 21, 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a what? A donkey. On a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So make no mistake, for those who are paying attention and have that scripture and that prophecy memorized, Jesus is being very intentional in this moment. He's riding into town going, I'm the king you've been waiting for. I'm the king you've been hoping for. I'm the king you've been praying for. I am the king. I'm the one that all the Old Testament was pointing toward. Now, he's sending another message, though, and it's an interesting message because in ancient culture, if a king rode into town riding on a war horse like a Percheron, that was bad news for everybody. That meant the king's coming to town, he's gonna kill you all. But if a king rides into town riding on a donkey, that means that he's bringing peace. He's not bringing bad news. He's bringing good news. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's showing up in a, here's the word, unexpected way. We're going to see that play out over and over and over again. Keep reading. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I want you to notice the way this crowd is feeling. They have this like hopeful expectation. They have these hopes and these dreams. So they shout to Jesus this word, Hosanna. You may have heard that in church before, not even know what it means. What it, what it simply means is this, it means Lord, save us. But what they want to be saved from is not what Jesus came to save them from. What they want to be saved from is this oppressive Roman government that taxes them upwards of 80% of their income, that has stolen the promised land out from underneath of them, that slaughters their husbands and brothers and sons, and even sometimes women and children puts them on crosses if they speak anything against Rome. They're going, Lord, save us. Save us from the bad guys. Like, deliver us from Rome. Kill the Romans. Kill the bad guys. Let's, 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 let, if you're the king, let's get this thing rolling. Let's overthrow this evil Roman government. And who could blame them? If you and I were in that circumstance, you and I would be hoping for and dreaming for and praying for all of the exact same things. That's what they want. Now, Jesus came to do something actually much bigger and much better and much more lasting than that, but they can't see through that because what's going on is in front of them is so painful. They can't see through their circumstances. Can anyone identify with that? 
See, what I'm learning about myself right now is that I am, um, the way I would put it is this, I'm shamefully impatient. Like, when I don't have clarity on something, when I don't have a resolution on something, when I don't have a clear picture of how things are going to turn out, if I don't have a quick fix on something, and I find myself waiting, I get very, very angry, I get very, very sad, I get very, very moody, I get very, very just upset, I, I start to, to worry and whine and complain, I'm just not very good at living in a place of uncertainty. So I, I keep coming back to uh, this, this, this scripture, Psalm 37, this entire chapter, but specifically this one verse that I keep coming back to right now. And this is one of those verses that, like, have you ever gone, there's verses in the Bible you go to that you, you, you go to them because you like them, and then there's verses in the Bible you go to not because you like them, but because you need them. This, this would be one of those for me. Psalm 37, 7 says it this way, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I am terrible at that. Anybody else? Actually had, actually had my son Eli read that. He, he was sitting down to read his Bible the other day, and I was like, what are you reading? He's like, I'm reading the Psalms. I was like, oh, I've been reading Psalm 37 a lot. Why don't you read Psalm 37 today? And he got to that verse, and he goes, hey, Dad, what's it mean to, like, be still before the Lord? And I said something like this. I said, well, it means to not try to play God, not try to get ahead of him, not try to kick and squirm against what he's doing in your life and to get impatient with him. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you kind of know what that's like? I'm like, yeah, I'm the expert at it. And I think a lot of us probably are. And these folks that are on this day in this parade with Jesus entering into Jerusalem saying, Lord, save us, Lord, save us, they're in that same place. They want resolution, they want clarity, they want action, they want things fixed, and they want it done the way they want it, and they want it done now. They've had enough of waiting on God. They've been waiting on God for a long time. The time is now to get moving. Let's overthrow this wicked, oppressive Roman government. And it says that in the midst of this parade coming down into town that the whole city of Jerusalem was stirred. And that word's really cool because it actually literally translates also shaken, which is most often used about like earthquakes. It was like an earthquake rolled into town, like the whole city was, was agitated, was disturbed, was turned upside down. I don't know if you've ever figured this out about Jesus yet or not, but he can be very disruptive. <laughs> Jesus can turn your whole life upside down. He can do it really, really fast. I've experienced that several times. Jesus has a real knack for doing that. Now, there's nothing like a big crowd to make government officials really nervous. I mean, they're already nervous because they got thousands of extra people in town. But now this Jesus guy, he's got like this impromptu parade thing that's happening. He's, some people are whispering that he's the king and everybody's talking like revolution and stuff like this. And so they know they can't have Jesus disturbing the peace. So, so tensions are high in Jerusalem right now. Now, if I'm just an average Jewish man who's traveled there to take part in Passover, and I see all this happening in front of me, and I see Jesus with all this momentum behind him, I would be thinking, all right, now's our shot. Now's our time. We've got to strike while the iron's hot. Let's go get these evil Romans. Let's go get them out of our nation. Let's take back our land. And so I would expect Jesus to go get the bad guys. And then Jesus, again, does something really unexpected. Look at what he does. The next verse, Matthew 21, 12. And Jesus entered the temple. Now, time out for a second. Why? Jesus, this is where all the good guys are. This is where your allies are. This is your people. What could you possibly need to do in here? We need you to go out there and deal with all that stuff that we need fixed. What could you possibly need to address in here? Everything's fine in here. Go out there, Jesus. Look at what he does. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Hang on to that. We'll talk about that. 
He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, we sanitize scripture. I think we think Jesus politely rolled in there and went like to a little coffee table and just like tipped it over and went, you know, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, guys. And you made it like a, like a den of robbers. Could you, could you please stop it? No. Jesus rolls in and it's like, this is my house. What have you done? What are you doing? You're trying to take advantage of poor people? You're trying to get in the way of people trying to worship their God? You're trying to capitalize on the backs of people who have traveled hundreds of miles and all they want to do is make a sacrifice? Are you kidding me? That, that's the way Jesus rolled into the temple. And I imagine everybody's on their heels going, whoa, 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 hold on. We're the good guys. Go get them. What are you doing in here? And Jesus, he's like, he's like laser locked. It specifically says on those who sold pigeons. You know why? Pigeons were the sacrifice of the poor. You know who had to make that sacrifice? Jesus' family when he was a kid. It says when Jesus went to the temple when he was eight days old to be dedicated, Mary and Joseph, all they could do was, was afford the sacrifice of the poor, a couple pigeons. And he looks at these people who are trying to capitalize on the poorest of the poor in his house. He goes, no, 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 no. Not in my house. And everybody's going, whoa, 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 Jesus, come on. We don't need you to come in here and disrupt things. We need you to go out there and fix things. And here's what I'm learning about Jesus. A lot of times when we have things we want him to resolve and we want him to fix out there, what Jesus really wants to do is to come in here and turn tables over. And we don't like that. We're not a fan of that. So we push. We resist. And Jesus does these unexpected things. And this is just one more indicator that Jesus came to do something much bigger than what everybody was hoping for. I mean, he could have rallied the troops. He could have gone and maybe kicked the Romans out for a little while. Who knows? But how long would it have been before they came back with more soldiers? That would have been a temporary fix. Jesus was there to do something eternal. Jesus came to accomplish this thing called peace. Jesus came to town not to rally troops to fight, but rather to tell everybody to be still while he fought for them and while he fought for us. And if you keep reading, they still don't get it in the, in the temple that day. They start shouting again, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And Jesus came to save us for sure, but not from temporary circumstances, but from eternal condemnation and punishment that we deserve. He came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this is unexpected. This is a surprise. We've been talking about these different principles of war. Well, one of them is the principle of the element of surprise. The element of surprise shifts the balance of power in an unexpected way at an unexpected time. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. The folks in Jerusalem had high hopes, man, he, that Jesus would ride into town on like a war horse like King David. And he would overthrow the government and he would sit on King David's throne. And all his followers would be like in his cabinet as his like advisors. Their expectation was that the Messiah would do all of this. And then Jesus does none of that. Jesus rides into town on a donkey and he goes to the table, to the temple, and he turns over tables. And then he spends the entire week of the Passover not even talking about their enemies but rather talking about them talking about their hearts talking about what's going on inside of them and he starts wrestling things out of them things like lack of faith and lack of trust trying to control their circumstances and manipulate all the outcomes and I bet people got really impatient with Jesus if you ever wonder why, like at the beginning of the week everybody's singing his praises and at the end of the week they're singing crucify him, crucify him 
I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Jesus wasn't living up to everyone's expectations and Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted to do, wanted him to do when they wanted him to do it. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with Jesus that goes like this? Hey, Jesus, what you're doing right now is not what we need done. This is a misallocation of resources, Jesus. If you would actually get on my plan, I have it diagrammed nicely over here. If you would just kind of follow the plan, everything would be fine, Jesus. But you seem to be going rogue like you're doing your own thing, and it's really not helpful. Anybody ever had a conversation with Jesus like that? I've been having a lot of those lately. I really, really have. By the end of the week, Jesus gets butchered. He gets hung on a cross. And literally the darkness comes rolling in and all his followers are literally like sheep without a shepherd. They're just scattered and they don't have the benefit that we have of knowing what was going to happen on the third day. We can look back and go, yeah, I'm sure that was tough. But I mean, in a few days, everything's going to be fine. They didn't know that. They didn't know that at all. I mean, if there's anything that seems permanent, it's death. If anything seems like a loss, like it's game over, it's hopeless, it's, it's death. A lot of people's favorite chapter in the Bible is Romans chapter 8, and I would tend to agree with them. Like, if you really pinned me down and said, hey, if you were on a desert island, you could only have, like, like one chapter in the Bible, what would it be? I'd probably say Romans 8. And in it, Paul, this man who suffered more than any of us can really ever even fathom or imagine, like, he, different parts of the Bible, he, like, lists the things that he went through, and none of us, none of us have gone through what he's gone through. And he's writing to this group of people in this place called Rome, <laughs> who are Christians living in Rome. So not just like, not like just in the Roman Empire, but like right in the belly of the beast. And they are being persecuted. Um, they, they are being tortured. They are, they are having things taken from them. They're, they're just dealing with a lot of really difficult circumstances, painful circumstances that they want out from underneath of. Now, they're like us. They could look back and go, we know Jesus, he, he died on a cross and he rose from the grave and he accomplished for us what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. But life is still hard. Life is still difficult. And some days they had more faith and more trust than in others. And some days they barely had any faith or any trust left. And so, so Paul writes to them and he says these, these really famous things like in Romans 8.18 where he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, what Paul is saying is in light of eternity, in light of God's kingdom, which is never going to cease, it's never going to stop, it's never going to end, it's only going to grow, it's only going to get better, what we're going through right now is like light, it's like momentary, it's like a blip on the radar. But when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel that way, does it? Allie and I, when we, were, when we were driving back from Kentucky, we were driving through Kansas at one point, and you have to find a way to entertain yourself when you're driving through Kansas. And, and so we were, we were listening to a friend of ours named Diana Bruner who spoke for our Women's If Gathering a few weeks ago. And whether you're a man or a woman, you should go online this week and listen to Diana's message that she gave because it was awesome. She just really, in a real and authentic way, just walked through some of the brutal circumstances her family's walked through for the past few years. And she talked about how when you're in the midst of those circumstances, you can start to very quickly and easily believe lies, like that God's given up on you, that God doesn't like you, that God's forgotten about you, that God's not with you, that maybe even there isn't a God. All that kind of stuff starts creeping in. And she talks about the importance of replacing those lies with biblical truth. And here's one of those biblical truths that I think is just really, really important to always have, like, like right in our hearts, and it's this, and we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to imagine something. Close your eyes, even. 
I want you to imagine that you're one of Jesus' followers. You're one of those first followers. You're a woman that he's healed. You're a woman that he's delivered. Or you're a man that used to be a fisherman and then he called you. Or you're a man who was a, a tax collector and everybody hated you. And then Jesus called you and everything changed. And you followed him around for a few years. You watched him. You learned from him. You saw him do miracles. And you started to develop like this picture in your mind of like how this was all going to turn out. Like you started to develop like these, these hopes and these dreams and these expectations. And then you roll into Jerusalem one day and there's this huge parade and everybody's calling him king and things like that and you think it's actually happening it's actually happening it's actually going to occur and then the week doesn't turn out anything like you thought it would the week keeps getting worse and worse and worse until they arrest him in a garden they take him and they rip his beard out and they spit on him and they make fun of him and they beat him and then they they put a crown of thorns on his head and they whip him and pull the skin right off of his back and then they nail him to a cross and they slaughter him for everybody to see and then they rip him down off that cross a few hours later and throw him in a grave and you're left going man what was that all hope seems lost now imagine in that moment someone coming to you and saying don't worry this will all work together for the good now open your eyes. What, what would you want to say to somebody who said that to you in that moment? What would you want to do to somebody who said that to you in that moment? Now, don't miss this. If they said that to you in that moment, would they have been telling the truth? Yep. Like, there's no greater moment in the history of the universe where God took something horrible and sinful and evil and redeemed it and used it and leveraged it for his glory and for our good more than the cross of his son Jesus that is what accomplished our salvation but if you're standing there on that day watching it all happen you have no idea that that's how things are going to turn out but if God who says I'll, I'll take all things and work them together for the good of those who love me, could, could take something as horrible as that and leverage it for the greatest, most important thing in the history of the universe. Is it possible that whatever it is you're facing and whatever it is that I'm facing, whatever it is that feels so dark and feels so difficult and feels like there is no way out, is it possible that he could take that and leverage it and use it and redeem it? Does all things include all things in your life? In mine it does Romans 8 ends this way and I figured it'd be a good way to end this series it says this what then what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it's God who justifies who's to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ what tribulation distress persecution famine nakedness danger sword as it's written for your sake we are we are being killed all the day long we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered and here's my favorite part no in uh -uh. all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we've talked about this before. How could you be more than a conqueror? Like I get conqueror, like you win. You're the one with your arm raised at the end. That guy's laying down. He's, he's dead. He's done. Right? You're either the conqueror, you're the winner, or you're the loser. But how can you be more than a conqueror? 
Well, to be more than a conqueror, what that would mean would be to not just defeat your enemy, but it would mean to take your enemy who was so set against you, who was working against you in all things, who was set on your destruction, and to take that enemy and make that enemy serve your good purposes. And that's what God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. He takes all the things, all these things that are set against us, that are set for our destruction, and he actually can use them and leverage them for our good. Now, let me ask you a question. What kind of a king can accomplish something like that? Answer, a strong one, a mighty one, a fierce one, an awesome one. The kind of God who can accomplish things like that is the kind of God worth following. The kind of king worth following into anywhere, into battle, into scary places, into places where we'll be forced to be brave. And we do need to be brave. So here's what I want us to consider as we wrap this whole thing up. Put aside all the things and people and places we want fixed and changed and resolved out there. And this week, maybe ask just one brave question. Jesus, what do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in me? Instead of focusing on all the stuff out there we want resolved and we want fixed out there, what I'm learning is that the brave thing would be to go, hey, Jesus, are there any tables in here that you want to turn over? And what would that be? Sounds scary, doesn't it? Sounds dangerous even, doesn't it? One of my favorite reflections on God outside of the Bible is in C.S. Lewis's Narnia novels where one character is inquiring about another character that represents God and goes, is he safe? And the response comes back, no. No, he's not safe at all. But he is good. He's not safe. He has a fierce kind of love, the kind of love that can part seas, the kind of love that can deliver slaves, the kind of love that can take evil and use it for good. He's not safe, but he's good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now and we do, we just get so overwhelmed with all the things out there that we want you to change, we want you to fix, we want you to remedy, we want you to resolve. And all the while, God, there's a lot of stuff inside of us that needs remedied and resolved and dealt with. And we don't want to look at those things because it's painful, it's difficult, it feels dangerous, it's scary, all of that. So God, would you help us to look to, especially this week, the cross of your son Jesus to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you want good for us and that you have good intentions for us, but also, God, that you can take all things, good, bad, and in between, And you can use them for your glory and for our good. And help us to be be obedient and to be brave. And to follow you wherever you may lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.